0: Today's episode of Growing Pains with David Campbell on the Unsettled Media Podcast Network is brought to you by the It's the Economy Stupid blog. That's David's blog. It's a blog about economic development in Atlantic Canada. Let's get to the show.
1: Welcome listeners to another edition of Growing Pains, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to economic development in Atlantic Canada. Today is December 4th, 2020, and we are supposed to be talking with David Chandi, CEO of the Atlantic Provinces Economic Council, getting an update on the impact of COVID-19 on the regional economy and the prospects for 2021. Unfortunately, David was under the weather and not able to join us. So at the last minute, an old friend of the pod Dr. Herb Emery agreed to step in and talk about his provocative new column questioning the recent PEI growth story. For me, the economic story over the past decade in the Maritimes has been a tale of two divergent narratives. Until recently in Nova Scotia and New Brunswick, the economies have mostly been stagnant with little economic or population growth, whereas the island economy and population has surged ahead. As always, Emery shines new light into the cracks and crevices to uncover some important nuance to this story. If you get a chance to take a look at my new It's the Economy Stupid blog over at DavidWCampbell.com. It's called Daryl Branscombe and New Brunswick's version of the Traveling Wilburys. The Council of Concerned Citizens in New Brunswick, an organization put together by Daryl, has been agitating from the sidelines over the past couple of years for big changes in the way we do K-12 education, healthcare, economic development, and other big issues. One thing the province has in abundance is older folks, most with, most with skills and expertise honed over 30- and 40-year careers. Let's put those minds to work alongside the young. Young, I applaud, again, uh, what Daryl and his group is doing, and you'll read more about that over at the blog. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Herb Emery. As always, if you have any questions, drop me a note via LinkedIn or Twitter. If you would like to have a specific topic covered on Growing Plains, also let me know. Thanks again for listening. Unsettled. Dr. Herb Emery, how are you today? Pretty good. Listen, I really appreciate you stepping in at the last minute here. For, for those of you listening, uh, we had slated to have David Chandi from the APEC on today, but he's under the weather. And of course, our good friend, the Mike Munger of Growing Pains with David Campbell, Dr. Herb Emery, agreed to step in at the last moment. And the timing is good because he did write what I consider to be a very provocative comment uh, column on the growth story on Prince Edward Island. We're going to get into that today. So how are you today, sir?
0: Doing quite well. Uh, Trying to get used to being back in the orange, but so far things aren't too bad.
1: Yes, it's very interesting because all of my Fredericton friends and acquaintances were quite snooty about the fact that they hadn't been put in the orange zone and now uh, they are in the orange zone. And of course, Moncton, when it was not in the orange zone, there was a national story in the media about how Moncton is so great and then of course a week later we were in the orange zone so there's a little bit of something to be said about being careful about uh (laughs) blowing your own horn when it comes to COVID.
0: Well let's just say this is one where you don't want to be on the radar so uh not being in any particular color would be a great outcome at this
1: point. It's a tricky time we we actually have to be in Fredericton tomorrow because there's a funeral my uncle passed away and I'm a pallbearer and uh So we called my wife called around and and she called the tip line there, the COVID tip line. And they said, we don't know, call the Red Cross. So she called the Red Cross and we were supposed to get some sort of, uh, I don't know, like a a hall pass from the Red Cross. And they said, no, I mean, you know, funerals, close relatives, that's fine. Just make sure you wear your mask and you don't do anything else. You don't go to restaurants or whatever. So we're going to be there tomorrow, but it is it is strange, uh, strange times for sure
0: yeah definitely
1: (laughs) it's a little rough out in your former uh home though alberta seems to be a little bit out of control out in that that neck of the woods
0: it definitely is but again the this may be the challenge of demographics with such a young population uh again with your high density you just don't get the same social control that you do in an older population and And again, the economy out there is impacting on their ability to control COVID because things are so rough that there is a legitimate concern that any kind of lockdown or restrictions will be crippling to the economy. And then the frustrating part from the evidence is that businesses aren't the source of the spread. It's coming through the private gatherings that you get more of when you shut down business. So it, a lot of the challenge will be trying to get the public to understand that businesses have protocols uh, for social distancing. They have contact tracing. You close those guys down and everyone goes into houses. We don't know who went in your house. We don't know how many were there. We don't know how to locate them. And when the premier of Alberta came out and said – We want to control your private home. Please go use the restaurants. He was ridiculed. And so there's a sense in which you kind of get what you deserve. And if a population doesn't want to smarten up and think about it, uh, you're not going to get to the root of the problem. So I feel bad for them out there. But it's going to be a rough winter, I think, across Canada.
1: Do you think it's as simple as... Docile Maritimers doing what they're told, and freedom-loving Albertans not. Or that—that that seems to me a pretty reductive, simplistic kind of narrative.
0: Again, it's quantity. We have the same problems here. If you look at who's spreading, it's coming through younger people who have traveled. They haven't restricted interprovincial travel or intercity travel out west. So I think a lot of ours is luck. Uh, not so much differences in behavior. If I watch high school kids, my son's in high school, they're not social distancing. All it would take is one case to go in to a high school group on the weekend and it will spread like wildfire. Uh, in a lot of cases, it's it can just be pretty innocent. You went to a dinner and someone showed up with symptoms and didn't know it. And again, it spread so fast that it's just the more of this you have around, the more of it you're going to see. And the hardest group to get under control is the younger population. So, uh, well, at
1: least we can kind of see light at the end of the tunnel, although I was reading somewhere that at least in the U.S., upwards of 50% of people responding – to surveys indicated they may not take or actually get jabbed with the virus. So there is a question about efficacy if you can't get herd immunity.
0: Well, again, herd immunity is one thing, but just making sure your health professionals and vulnerable are protected if you do have people that don't want the immunity. I don't think that's that bad. It's not particularly lethal for the younger population. So i'd like the instructions coming from dr tam that just start with the oldest work your way down get the health care of professionals done and i just wanted to follow up on the docile maritimers being different from the west your crew out in miramichi with the beta van or whatever it was they're gathering or grand lake <laughs> i don't think there's any docility in new brunswick it's pure luck when you look at those gatherings in the summer that someone didn't show up at the wrong moment
1: yeah i think it's more likely that than it is docility listen um i remember the first girl that broke my heart we were in high school and i was head over heels in love with her and we went out to a movie or a show or something i forget now and then we she waited till after the show and then she dumped me uh dumped me hard and so I, I still, to this day, still have a broken heart. Jeez, what was uh, the movie? <laughs> I, it, look who's talking to. Look who's talking to. You, you thought I wouldn't remember, but I do remember. So she broke my heart. And, you know, when I read that column that you wrote on Prince Edward Island, you broke my heart, uh, uh, Dr. Herb memory. You know, I thought after all of the time that you and I have debated and dialogued on this, um, this is the first time that I think you you really broke my heart. No, let's get into it, though. You, you're you basically um, contrasting the growth rate on PEI and trying to say maybe it's not as great as people think it is. And so what was the genesis? What brought you to this? Was it just because you read a CBC uh, article or saw something you didn't like? Or what, what, what prompted you to sort of do a big takedown on the PEI growth story in this column?
0: So some of it was reading the CBC story. And one of the angles is that CBC typically has a negative view of the economy of New Brunswick. So you're more often than not going to read what's wrong with New Brunswick. So I just thought, you know, if you were to tell me that Nova Scotia is firing on all cylinders, and we should be looking to them for lessons, I can kind of accept that. But when you tell me that a population of around 160,000 has lessons for a very complex and industrial economy like New Brunswick, I think there's something missing in that narrative. And so all I was trying to point out is that it's not that PEI is doing badly. It's just that the secret of their success is already in New Brunswick, that the challenges that we face as a province are in your northeast and your southwest and St. John to an extent. When I, So my only point was, I said, if we looked at a comparable economy, which is just across the bridge, Westmoreland and Albert County, and if we magically made those a province – you'd see that they're growing just as well. And so whatever PEI is doing right, uh, so is Moncton. So is Albert County. And there is a funny comedy show, This Is That, that has an episode that's done as a news thing where they had a Moncton leader proposing to build an Anne of Green Gables uh, museum in Moncton to divert traffic from PEI. And so there's a great mythical debate between the Prince Edward Islanders objecting that Anne would be taken over by New Brunswick. And New Brunswickers saying Anne is really a Canadian thing, not a PEI thing. And so when you think about it, you're getting down to that level. PEI does tourism terrific. Uh, they were very early on the golf course they have a terrific focus on their foods industry they've got a lot of good stuff going on with their university and my only point is those strengths are also in new brunswick with a caveat i think new brunswick could be even doing better because i think new brunswick premiers have actually been helping prince edward island by some of the companies we could have had here have been investing in pei uh, with their additional factories. So, again, it, it's it's complicated, but the bigger message is that understanding why PEI is growing isn't going to help Charlotte County.
1: So I think that's fair, but I will point out that in addition to this is that um, the two communities that are most lampooned on this hour is 22 minutes, as I understand it, are Canmore, Alberta, and Moncton, New Brunswick. So it's Mike from Canmore. And I don't know what it is these days, but at the, uh, so so Moncton does tend to get uh, lampooned a bit by CBC. Uh, I'm not sure Robert Jones is lampooning, but certainly this hour is 22 minutes. So, <laughs> so, so I, I get your point. So that actually, when I when I read that, so sort of comparing PEI to Moncton and Moncton's hinterland, um, you know, the comparison is not great because Albert County outside of Riverview is, you know, it's just become a, a big retirement place right I mean there's there's some little small-scale farming and some small-scale tourism
0: I would argue there's chunks of PEI that fit that description quite well out of Charlottetown so
1: I could have just been
0: Charlottetown and Moncton
1: yeah but those are
0: the drivers right now
1: but Albert County particularly bugs me because Albert County 100 (laughs) years ago no but it was a it was a going concern it had yeah Albertite manufacturing so that thing that they used to use that sort of um, mineral was called albertite it was it was founded in albert county and it was mined for a number of years they had natural gas at the turn of last century they were they were pumping out natural gas into, into the greater Moncton area they had a larger forestry industry in the past um, now they've got some very small scale maple syrup there might be a couple of larger players out there but there's not much and so i think albert county is for me it's a bit of a case study in what happens when you just ignore an economy
0: okay. So in my comparison, if I had left Albert out, it just makes Westmoreland look great because Westmoreland County alone is outperforming PEI. Uh, So part of it was to make the comparison what I thought was fairer was to increase the landmass in the New Brunswick side by adding Albert, slowing it down to make a point that, they're growing comparably on the same geographic uh, dimensions and then i threw in cumberland county and nova scotia just to make a bigger point which is those guys have real problems uh, compared to either pei or or the uh, southeastern new brunswick and again that speaks more to what happens when you're in the hinterland of a dominant center like halifax you just get left behind so albert county could be argued to be the same thing with moncton there's probably regions of pei but i think the main message is when we make these comparisons across geographies we need to be careful uh what we're actually comparing across to get the lessons and if the real lesson is you need a city then we need to pay attention to that as opposed to you're not using your resources wisely
1: yeah i think it's more like a rorschach test almost so what do you see when you look at PEI? What do you want to see? So when I look at PEI, I see you know a, a very high level of provincial nominees starting in 2010. And everybody else across the country was frozen by the Fed. So we were frozen at a very low level. So yes, I mean, I, I think the retention rates are better than you cite in your column, although those are from a few years ago. Uh, but still, yeah, there's no doubt they lost at least 50%, maybe 60%. Uh, and maybe slightly higher I don't know we don't really know that I don't think but if you look at the census data which is the best measure so if you take 96 census compared or excuse me 2001 to 2006 to 2011 to 2016 you get the best data on retention at least at that point in time because it's a full census uh, but nevertheless it's true they lost a lot and they they you know but they kept quite a few because you can't argue the stats right they did have the best population growth, uh, I'm just looking at 2015 to 2019 here, but they had the best population growth in the country, and then GDP growth over that period was the highest in the country, even higher than BC. Yeah, so again, though, you- the
0: the challenge is when you have small numbers, a small change can have a large percentage increase. So PEI has always caused us problems when we do academic studies because it's such an outlier in terms of being small that it can have huge changes in rates. And that's why I think you see a resorting quite often to reporting on the Atlantic region as opposed to at the level of province. Most of our GDP stats might be problematic, too, if they're based on any kind of survey information, uh, if you have producers. So, again, it's PEI is always a challenge to evaluate. And I don't want to detract from PEI as much as say, I just don't think the lessons for New Brunswick as a province are as strong as people might think. But PEI is doing a lot of things well. That's one of the main things that we need to keep in mind.
1: Yeah, because I think, and again, I'm not going to pound you over the head because actually reading <laughs> the column over two or three times, it started to, right, the first time I read it through, I'm angry. Second time <laughs> through, I'm starting to be a little more resigned. Third time through, after a little something to eat and, you know, was just a little more time to reflection, I start to realize, well, maybe he's, he's got a point here. But... Um yeah, I mean I think the urban rural thing is 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 an important consideration. So comparing maybe Prince Edward Island to say Moncton plus Moncton's hinterland is is not actually a bad thing to do. I was looking at the numbers today just on population growth over the last 10 years. Uh Stats Canada has been releasing their population estimates for census subdivisions and if you look at census subdivisions between the population with between 3 and 10,000 population all of the ones that have been growing are in the orbit of Moncton and Fredericton, except one. There's one on the outskirts of, of all places, Woodstock. It's called um, Simons, maybe. Huh. That actually that actually had population. It's on the Trans Canada there, but it actually had population growth <laughs> faster uh, faster than uh, Woodstock, if you can believe it. So, so the rest of them were around Fredericton, places like uh, Douglas you know, St. Mary's in Moncton, it was Shediac like led the whole world in population growth over the last 10 years.
0: Well, part of my interest in this comparison came from your blog when you had put your information up about, let's call it the smaller urban areas and their growth rates. And you pointed out Dieppe and Shediac really stood out. And to me, Shediac in that region is a lot like Prince Edward Island. You have a the same kind of seasonal economy, quite often the same kinds of people attracted. And I would even guess that a lot of people who the seasonal population of Shediac area and down there versus PEI, the summer population must be huge, but they're not residents the way we count population. And so the overall influence of that tourist or seasonal industry, where you do have more people who are at cottages, going to the parks, I think that we're understating how well the Moncton area is doing when we just go with true population counts, how many people are here for census or tax purposes. And so again, I was kind of hoping you'd read the column and feel good about being in Moncton and being part of the, the robust uh, place of growth in the province of New Brunswick because things obviously are going well uh, in terms of the Moncton economy and out towards Shediac.
1: Yeah but I want my ultimate goal is for uh, dynamic and thriving Atlantic Canada and a dynamic and thriving New Brunswick and in any jurisdiction you're going to have some that outperform others but on the to- in totality I would like Moncton to do well, and I'd like the province of New Brunswick to get back to some level of sustainable economic growth, something around 2% or 2.5. Uh, and the population growth that comes with that. So I think the, you know, where that growth occurs, just like Ontario, or anywhere else, Alberta as well, it's going to be distributed in different ways. But at the end of the day, I think that's ultimately my goal. But I do want to push you a bit on PEI. So so your points are well taken, but Let's talk about it from an economic development lens. So things that government did specifically to impact that growth. And again, you can you can read into that whatever you want. But for example, the the aerospace parts and products industry on the island, again, it's, it's, a, it's definitely the per capita problem, right? As you say, because it's such a small jurisdiction. But they have led the country in the growth of, you know, they've got $100, $200 million worth of aerospace parts exports. And when you look at it, it was a deliberate effort to build that Sleeman Park to convert that that uh, old industrial or that old uh, uh, Canadian Forces base to something of private sector value. And they put a lot of money into that, federal and provincial money. They attracted a few big players, uh, and they you know there was the growth of local players as well. And it's not a huge cluster by any means, but it is you know about two hundred million dollars. Oh, and by the way, they did offer that corporate income tax break which we could talk about maybe maybe another day, but at the end of the day, they did do deliberate things, right? Put programs at and College to support aerospace. And now it's a $200 million, $300 million export industry. Now, it... You know, there, there's not a ton of value add. So there's, if you look on the import side, there's quite a bit of stuff coming in that's then transformed and then shipped back out. But at the end of the day, for a small province, it's kind of a cluster. Now, if you look at the um, biosciences with what the Bio Alliance is doing, you can see some of that is just sort of outgrowth of government spending. But there is some legitimate, right? There's pharmaceutical manufacturing over there. Uh, and and there's a number of startup companies that have, have, have sort of broken out and are now starting to scale up. So would you agree that there are some nuggets of joy in the PEI story that we should be looking at and trying to learn from?
0: Of course. And, again, I'm just asking you to think about the nuggets of joy in your backyard at the same time. So you do have aerospace in Moncton with Apex Uh, industries. You do have a lot of companies, they may not be as sexy, but they are producing and doing pretty high tech stuff. You have the tissue plant and tissue conversion, which is actually a high value added industry, even though New Brunswickers are baffled by toilet paper, apparently, but you get a little fiber goes a long way in terms of an export. And so I'm just asking you to, to not run down PEI but also to recognize that the new Brunswick government did a lot of the same policies particularly historically the the big focus of federal dollars to attract these non-resource based manufacturing industries to New Brunswick is a long standing approach uh, i think your complaint has been we've sort of fallen off of that focus And we can debate whether or not subsidies or payroll rebates are the way to do it. But New Brunswick did attract a lot of manufacturing over the years. And Prince Edward Island's now doing it. We look at them and say, wow, that looks pretty good. But it's not new for this province. It's not new for Nova Scotia. In a lot of cases, it may just be who's executing better uh, in terms of getting these things done. And... You know, shipbuilding used to be huge in St. John. It moves to Halifax so they get a win, we get a loss. And now you've got all the industrial transition or the ITB credits. I always forget what the acronyms for, but basically when you procure to build a ship, it leads to more funding for the region for R and D and for local procurement. And so in a lot of cases, we have to think about is Prince Edward Island better at getting into that game? Aerospace would be something I would think of. And so again, it's kind of like, come on, New Brunswick, we can do more. PEI is doing good stuff. Can't we beat those guys? And so I don't want Moncton to sort of go head to head with Charlottetown. I think Moncton should be capable of growing a lot better. You guys landed Costco for heaven's sake.
1: Uh, I started, <laughs> I started interviewing a UNB professor and I ended up interviewing the, the mayor of Moncton. They're quite a cheerleader for, uh, for the hub city, <laughs> yeah,
0: but not Riverview. So there's a good hockey.
1: Costco story, right? So the, the, yeah. the, the old timers in real estate, uh, Costco was looking at Halifax and Moncton at the same time. And, uh, were looking for some sort of deal or some sort of special break on land or something in Halifax. And they threatened to put the first Costco in Moncton. That's how the story goes. Uh, and ended up putting it in, in, in Halifax. So there's always been a little bit of a, uh, tension, healthy competition between Halifax, uh, and Moncton going back as long as I've been around. So let's talk a little bit about government focus. Um, um, because I do have you for the full forty-five minutes to an hour, right? You have enough time oh, yeah. for me today, okay? Yeah,
0: absolutely. Uh,
1: because I do think it's that's a that's a, I'd like to pull on that thread a little bit because I think you're you're correct that there have been periods when New Brunswick has at least it seems more visibly had success. Maybe uh, you know the folks at OMB. We had Steve Milbury on last week, and and you know he's saying that, that there's lots of successes, and I have no reason to disagree with him. I do fear that sometimes we equate providing government money to firms as economic development. And so you you know you you pump in government money into 20 firms and you say hey that's economic development and maybe those firms might have grown anyway particularly ones that are expanding in your province. So it's very hard to decouple those but you have in the past actually seen initiatives that where you had zero GDP, and then you know five years later you had 100 million dollars in GDP, all net new activity. And so the, you know the call center industry was is the most famous version of that. But there's been other examples as well, and I don't see as many of those lately. Like cybersecurity, we're trying to go there, and if you look at it, there's some green shoots. But a lot of the you know the bulk of that industry is still you know Q1 Labs and Boseron Security and other firms that were here and probably would have grown anyway, without a formal initiative wrapping around them. Now they may disagree with me on that. And I do think we have potential to grow that. So what I have done, and you uh, recently talked to me about a survey, a study that was done in Alberta about subsidies. And it, it looks to me at, a, at the highest level, what's happening is more and more of the federal money is flowing into uh, income support. So to either direct income support to individuals or to government to pay for public services, and there's less money going into economic development. That is certainly the case if you look at it as a share of federal spending. I think it might even be the case in absolute terms. When I look at, so I just looked at the subsidy data from Stats Canada, and I think i Talk to you a bit about this over email, but basically if you go, if you just look at the latest five, four or five years, so I looked at 23 to 2017, that's the latest data we have. There was about $828 million in subsidies given to all industries. So that's agriculture, that's every industry. that I didn't break it out by industry. It's just total money pumped in by government, federal, and provincial into industry. That represents about 1.7 million. Percent of GDP or something like that. No, sorry, that's not the right number. The bottom line is Prince Edward Island five hundred and five million over the same period. So if you adjust it for population, which we have to do, you know that's like three plus three, three point three times as much incentives to pumped into the PEI economy. And of course, Nova Scotia is double New Brunswick. Uh, Quebec is the highest in the whole world. Uh, at, at three times New Brunswick, Ontario is even higher than New Brunswick. I, again, adjusted. Uh, I did this as a share of GDP, so um, you could do it per capita. You could do it some other way. So at the end of the day, it does look like. And then what what amazes me though is that you know folks like Stephen Lund, the former CEO of OMB, sort of hold that up and say and brag about it and say, "Well, look, we're not giving out a lot of incentives. Look, look at those numbers. They're right from Stats Canada." So. I don't think subsidies should be used as your proxy for economic development, but it does say something when you're last in the country, even below Alberta. Now, Alberta would say, well, most of ours go to the agriculture sector. But what do you say about that? What 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 does, in your mind, that, that significantly less level of, of subsidy to industry from government to New Brunswick firms, what does that say about our commitment to economic development?
0: Well... The- What's really interesting when you think about it is we've made a decision to let the market dictate what we'll locate here and what we'll do, Uh, where the other, call them competing provinces around us and possibly U.S. states have made a different decision. They've said there's certain disadvantages to this region, like transportation costs and higher taxes and regulations. So We're going to, instead of dealing with bad regulation and high taxes, we're going to offset the disadvantage in a targeted way by just giving subsidies or rebates. And so what they're doing, and this has come out of the post-NAFTA era where it's harder to sort of hide your subsidies in different policies like transportation, freight rates uh, being reduced for the region. That went away in the 90s. And with power rates as well, in the mid-2000s, they went to fair pricing. So large industrial rates rapidly went up to uh, being what was the cost of providing the service to them. And this is currently an active debate in St. John on water pricing and things like that. So when you think about it, what the old approach in New Brunswick used to be wasn't direct cash for industry. It was uh, cheaper energy, cheaper capital uh, that was coming in to get all the secondary manufacturing at some point, New Brunswick decided we don't do that anymore. If government wants to do it, it has to be a direct subsidy. So cash up front, make it visible. And then at a certain point, that became politically difficult to do. So we stopped doing as much of it. And if you read The Unicorn in the Woods, the interesting part is how the other provinces really did well from Q1 Labs and Radiant 6. We didn't book it here because we weren't playing the game that Stephen talked about. So, what Stephen Lund had to do at ONB was he had to be a little more, uh, let's say, targeted in who he went after and how he could go about it. And Megan Seagrave and Brennan Sisk on another one of your podcasts made the point that when you don't have cash, you got to be better at regulation, you got to be better at tax policy, and you got to be better at creating the conditions for business like predictability and certainty. And so, you can't have it both ways. You can't be a low cash subsidy environment and be a basket case on what's my work safe premium next year? What's my power rate going to be? You have to make it better conditions for investors to come in so that they don't need the cash to sort of compensate them for the risk you're bringing in. So to me, I, I've said this to Stephen Lund before, I wanted information on the amount of subsidies going in because that's a measure of how bad your business conditions are. That you can't create favorable conditions without cash. And so The good business conditions should reduce the amount of subsidy you have to provide, especially long run predictability. And when you take those things away, you have to do more of the game that everyone else is playing, which is I can't fix the other stuff. Here's some money. Please come and locate here.
1: So I worry that I'm becoming Rush Limbaugh and speaking more than my actual guests. So I apologize for that, but I'm trying to articulate (laughs) what I, what I want you to respond to. Right. So I was told, uh, a while ago now that a good host will only speak about less than 10% of the words and the guests should speak 90. And right now we're about 50, 50. So I apologize for that.
0: But that's when you have good guests.
1: Well, there you go. (laughs) No, no, you're my best guest. You're my Mike Munger. But I, so I think that's right. And I think that's what's interesting about that is, you know, I used to have these big debates with municipalities about tax rates and we'd sit around the table and they would just sort of hammer, we've got to keep the rate at, you know, 1.415. And this is, this is the, the the public wants this and the da, 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 da. And I said, yeah, but your assessments are going up 3% a year. So the public doesn't care about the rate. They care about what they're paying at the end of the day, their taxes. And I think that's kind of what you're saying here is that, is that if you have high energy costs and you try to offset that with some sort of subsidy well, why not just try to get the energy costs down to begin with? Or, or in other words, if there's some sort of structural challenge, why are you trying to offset that with a, with a big subsidy? Now, maybe there's a point to the subsidy, right? In other words, you know, everybody else can afford to pay the high rates, but if you're trying to attract an export sector, you know, you need to offer a direct subsidy. But I think that the underlying principle is solid. I just worry sometimes that we, some media and some others are equating, they're calling something a subsidy that's actually not necessarily a subsidy. So I'd like you to uh, respond to this. So in Alberta, there's talk of billions and billions of subsidies for the oil and gas industry. Are those direct subsidies cash directly to firms or are those just discounts on royalty and tax rates? So what, what, what is the Alberta government and federal government giving the industry that media is calling a subsidy?
0: Well, there's a whole host of them. It can be, very few of them are direct cash. It's mostly, let's call it exemptions on certain tax payments, holidays on royalties, which is what you get for capital costs in the oil sands historically. Uh, In other cases, it could be some kind of fuel surcharge that's again, waived for some users and not others. And the complaint is often that Uh, Unlike cash, a lot of these what get called subsidies or breaks or offsets, which will often be negotiated in return for building a large capital project with uncertainty uh, or fixing like your water rates for 30 years, those kinds of things. They all get counted as subsidies, which is an appropriate interpretation. But it's a one sided conclusion because you have to think about what did that subsidy buy you? And you've made this point about the tire plant in Nova Scotia before, that a lot of incentives went in, but now today, would you ask, would you like to get rid of that plant and get the the cash back? And probably the answer is no, that these things have employed a lot of people. They built up your tax base. These are your anchor industries. And we have to remember that those are footloose industries like a tire plant. It could locate in a lot of places. And so you really have to make a decision who do you want to tax and how do you want to get the uh, benefits from the growth and increasingly it seems in Canada we have a strong preference for taking the our our share of the growth now we want to tax capital we want to take higher wages but we're not willing to think about the long term which is these companies may not hang around if it's unfavorable so to me, the frustration is when they start taking the word subsidy and they start calling it corporate welfare. It becomes a pejorative, which makes it very difficult to sort of talk about what are we trying to offset here as the locational disadvantage, so that you can still competitively export into another market. And when you, no one keeps track of a scoreboard about loss of the transportation subsidy in the 90s, loss of the. Uh, favorable rate for large industrial producers, loss of the local uh, long-term agreements expiring on water rates and things like that. And so when you look at it over time, you have an accumulation of eroding competitiveness. And then everyone comes along and says, don't you dare help those companies until PEI and Nova Scotia come along and they say, well, we're willing to help them with their next investment. We'll build their plant. And we have New Brunswick companies building capacity in Prince Edward Island for reasons like that.
1: So, yeah, I mean, if if you read Savoy's books on the history of economic development in this region, he talks about Canada kind of reorienting trade east-west after Confederation and sort of breaking the long-term north-south pattern in trade. And then as soon as the east-west was entrenched, then started to institute policies that basically cut the region off whether it's the the billions put into the St. Lawrence Seaway or ultimately all the way to the 90s when when freight subsidies were cut and so on. So it's kind of interesting now we're kind of boxed in it's you know but we still export a lot to the US. But I just coming back on the subsidy thing because I just want to clarify something that that um, I think bothers me in the media. So if you look at the subsidies to the oil and gas industry as you described them could you take those subsidies and give them to the green energy sector?
0: That's an argument that's being made. But again, the two-pronged approach to it is you remove those subsidies, remembering that we're the high-cost marginal producer of hydrocarbons in the globe. So in order to get things like the oil sands, which were the Canadian Energy Security and Diversification Project of the 70s, Uh, to give them to green, you're reducing the amount of fossil fuels that you're going to produce and export, which the greens would like, and you're then going to take the same subsidies and try and drive an energy source that we're not necessarily competitive in. We have a great record with hydro. We're still waiting to see how that can relate to renewables, and there's some good work coming out by Louise Como and colleagues making a case that the combination of Quebec's hydro with renewable wind and solar opportunities, we could make a go of it in New Brunswick. There's also the nuclear space coming in. So. The issue around fossil fuels is that we're probably self-sufficient. We can produce as much as we need. And remember, no one likes to pay high gas prices in Canada. And part of the reason gas prices aren't high is because we have historically subsidized fossil fuels for consumers much more than other jurisdictions. So it's really then you get into energy as an export. And energy as an export has been what's driven the Canadian economy for 20 years And so when you talk about this green shift, you're really talking about killing an export engine to hope that the renewable or green economy is going to be enough to offset it with GDP growth. And that's a bit of a gamble. Uh, So Colleen D'Entremont, who's been on your show, she's made the case that we're talking about the timing of the transition and over how many years we're going to remove the subsidies and give them to someone else. And that's a different conversation than just pull them away and give them to those guys. My bet is because we don't have any particular competitive advantage in uh, solar and renewable and other things is that we'll become an energy importer if we do that. And because consumers aren't patient to wait for the cost to come down, they will take whatever energy source is cheap. And Ontario right now imports a lot of oil from the United States that's one of the real puzzles since uh, Alberta ran into trouble with pipeline capacity is Ontarians don't want oil sands, but they're quite happy to import someone else's fracked oil.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of um, inconsistency there, but I did want to just pin you down on that subsidy thing, because I think the argument has been that the reason the oil and gas industry in Alberta has been successful has been because of the subsidies. And I think what you're suggesting is that to some extent is correct but what bothers me a bit is that is that people think that it's a either or so in other words if we take the subsidies away from oil and gas and we put them into green we'll get great outcomes too but you'll lose all the benefits of the tax and royalty benefits of the oil sector so it's a, it's not a simple comparison right do you i guess the question is do you get the same tax and royalty benefits from green as you get from oil and gas
0: well again you can't scale that industry the same way you can with oil and gas, which is an export industry. And I wanted, here's an example of a subsidy that people don't normally think of. So Quebec has low power rates because they have hydro. So when I was on a, a roving panel that was looking into fixing equalization after the Atlantic uh, changes came in around Newfoundland and Nova Scotia, wanting to produce energy, take the royalties and keep equalization, It resulted in a huge fight across Canada about what should be considered in the revenue formula for calculating how much money to transfer. And an interesting one that came up was everyone kept saying Alberta needed to include its user fees, which didn't count as taxes, into the formula, which would make Alberta pay more out. The counter from Alberta and Saskatchewan to Manitoba and Quebec was then you need to price your hydro at export rates, not your domestic internal rate, to get the full value of that energy included in the base. That would mean a big loss of money for Quebec and Manitoba through equalization. So that's a massive subsidy coming into Quebec for energy because they price below market. But because no one gets upset about destroying habitat with dams and everything else and displacing populations, that's a subsidy that's considered okay. But with fossil fuels, where it's an export industry for the most part since uh, 1997, the subsidy was playing a different role that was spilling over across Canada through the multipliers and through the trade and everything else. And so to me, I think what's happened with these subsidies is, is that Canadians have made a decision about what types of energy they like, what they want to see in terms of the environment, and they see the simple way to get there is just to simply announce that we should stop subsidizing energy, without ever thinking who else is subsidizing energy. And if we offshore here so that we're green, maybe the subsidy in another regions they don't regulate production the same way like in a, over in the stands and not just past the middle east is you don't see the same kind of environmental regulation around drilling and production and how does it make the globe a better place if you hammer your industry here to put it in places that aren't as well equipped to deal with the environmental degradation and the emissions so that's the frustrating part with a lot of these arguments that we can just shift to green is Mm -hmm. we're not going to export uh green electricity the same way we were exporting oil and gas and so If it's about being greener and self-sufficiency, that can work great. But don't count on it being an income driver. And then you have to start restraining your public sector demands for spending because you won't have the tax base that you have with an export industry like oil and gas.
1: Yeah. So that logic, it's one of the things I struggle with the most in the whole debate around greening the economy and reducing carbon emissions is- the outsourcing of those emissions. If you close your refinery, yeah, your emissions go way down, but they just go up elsewhere in the world uh, to compensate because as long as the demand holds, right? Now, the counter argument is, well, if you really constrain supply, then eventually alternatives will come around, but that would require some sort of global or at least advanced economy uh, uh, agreement. So last question on that, because I do want to get back... Really quick
0: on that. It's totally true. If you raise the price of the fossil fuels for consumers. Like let's just take the European price of gasoline and put it in New Brunswick. So three bucks a liter. We can do it. We can get people out of their cars. Are they going to be happy about it? Are they going to have the same standard of living in terms of real income? No. It's about making your choices. So you want to be greener. You don't want fossil fuel uh, combustion engines. Let's let the transition happen. I would love to see a price of gas in Toronto of $3 a liter. I think we could really help them green their economy and live healthier, but they won't accept it. And so Europe has already shown us the path, but instead we want to kill the export industry rather than deal on the consumption side and behavioral change, which is if we really want to green this economy, that's where we got to look, is we we consume too much, our houses are too big, we drive too much, we fly too much. The way to solve that is with higher energy prices. But if you don't want to do that, you still, we still have to have the rational discussion about what what tradeoffs are we willing to make.
1: Yeah, but as I've said to you before, I think, or other people, it's the it's the old Bruce Coburn thing about everybody loves to see justice done on somebody else. So it's easy to sit in Toronto and say let's close down Alberta or close down uh, Newfoundland and Labrador. But we've had those discussions, I think. I'm hoping that some common sense will prevail and I will have you back on to talk more about oil and gas, you know, and energy in general, SMRs. But just one last question on that, which has always kind of bothered me and that is why, and actually somebody raised this with me and I didn't have a good answer. They said, why don't we just put charge royalties on other products? Why is it we just charge royalties on extractable industries? And why don't we charge surplus royalties on, I don't know, our potatoes or, is it just a straight issue of market demand or why why is it just minerals, extractive, non-renewable resources that we charge royalties on?
0: Well, if we also charge royalties on forest products. Um, we There's different ways of collecting revenue from natural resource industries.
1: You can so sell- Wait a minute. The- where, where, do we, where do we charge on forest products?
0: Well, you have you have um, the timber rights, which you can sell. Up yeah, front. Well, that's
1: that's just the price of the timber. You have
0: the right, but then you have the rent on the holding the rights over time if you're not harvesting, and then you pay stumpage or a royalty at the time of harvest. Uh, so the and terms are different. Me,
1: that sounds to me a bit like the price of the resource. But anyway, go ahead. I mean, it,
0: well, it, the important thing is what you're trying to do, whether it's a forest, a mineral a fish or anything is there's rents in the resource, which is a form of profit. It's the fact that the crown owner uh, has a resource that has value that once extracted uh, is, let's say, a higher value than you could produce as a crown owner. So you need someone to come in and do it. And so the royalty, it, what we're really trying to tax is what's the public calls a profit, but it's really called economic rent which is because it's got a unique endowment, it's non-renewable, it has sort of a profit dimension to it. And you don't want to just let the the producer of it take the whole thing. So you're trying to get a fair share for the public. And so the reason I brought up you can auction off the rights initially, which is you just then say no further royalties. You could take all your revenue up front. You can have a holding tax on the rights if someone's not producing, which is the second stage. And then you charge a tax or a royalty at the time of production. You take a share of the price. Now, you could do a share of the profit, which is you take the costs, the price that you got on the unit produced, and you subtract off the average cost of getting it. But what you'll find is that with big capital costs and uncertain investments, the costs would swamp it and so you'd get no revenue because these companies could always have losses. Now, against royalties in extractive industries, you also used to have tax structures like flow-through shares for investors that you could actually profit from the losses up front uh, and not pay any tax. So the challenge with a lot of this is You're trying to tax the profit or the rents inherent in the resource itself. And we kind of came to an agreement with these industries that the royalty rate was the way to go. But you'll see that over time, there's huge fights over what percentage of the price that should be or what the rate should be. Um, Famously, in Alberta in the 1930s, they agreed on a 50-year rate of 15%. And Peter Lougheed, when he came in, unilaterally tore that up and triggered a capital strike that the companies that were there were all threatening to pull out of Alberta in 1972, it looked like things were going bad, and then OPEC happened and bailed everyone out. But these fights over royalties and how much to pay, they're ongoing, and it's complicated because the royalty is on production, but they've given all kinds of holidays on royalties, often for the development phase of the project.
1: But it ends up, her getting paid by the, Purchaser, right? At the end of the day, these these royalties end up being paid for by the whomever. At the end of the day, the consumer, the business, or the household, right? Well, so whoever lot, buys
0: the oil, yeah.
1: Yeah. So who? Why doesn't the world get together? Why isn't there an OPEC for? I don't know uh, agriculture, and just they agree cartel like just like OPEC to put a big uh, a big royalty on all exported agricultural products around the world that would it would seem partially solve this problem that everybody's so dependent on oil to world, a world. I, I understand how simplistic and, simplistic and stupid this sounds well, but i want to understand the, the theory same. i want to understand the theory
0: marketing boards are the same idea you're talking about the producers getting together and combining to set a price that's stable on the other side how come consumers can't get together and sort of or the crown owners of the land get together and uh get a better price out of it and again it's because you're globally competing in a lot of cases so your ability to to charge a higher royalty is the capital you're trying to attract as a multinational and so if you jack up your royalty rate in saskatchewan they go across the border to north dakota if you try to charge too high a royalty rate if you wanted to do gas in new brunswick you'll find that they'll go further afield to some other place that isn't going to take so much of the profit that comes out And so, again, it's unless you have your domestic companies, your nationalized industries, which is what has been tried from time to time, it's very difficult to compete to get the production and development in your jurisdiction without some kind of favorable royalty rate. And this is the softwood lumber dispute is all about this issue is there's a claim that New Brunswick is subsidizing through too lower stumpage on crown land, but there's all kinds of other things about the production conditions in New Brunswick that you can't command the same stumpage that you might in a place that's closer to market and things like that. So it's these tax issues, which is what a royalty question is really about, is complicated and understanding who your end market is Uh, also further complicates how much you can extract or resist having to pay that uh, price coming through but one argument is is that you can't get the end consumer of a commodity to pay the tax it ultimately goes back to the crown owner if they want the capital to locate because it gets passed through and it ultimately gets passed through the people who can't move which is the crown owner
1: okay so i I guess just to put a pin in that because i think the problem is around the world there's so many countries that are absolutely dependent on oil and gas royalties that it's it will hamper this so-called transition right because you're going to have countries from mexico to wherever right nigeria that are going to really suffer and they don't have a ready alternative so why not have an opec style price setting and allow it by government uh, on some other commodity that will, that will uh, maybe even trees, actually, what you've what you you've been talking about, trees, maybe you put it on trees. Yep. Government charges a royalty on every tree, 50 cents, above and beyond stumpage and all this other stuff, and you do it around the world. Mexico plants 50 million, 50 billion trees, and all of a sudden you've got a flood of the market of trees. I don't know. I'm, I'm just saying for some reason we got dependent on royalties in that one industry, which is incredibly important. But it's really setting back any kind of transition because everybody's going to want to pump out, as long as they're making an additional dollar on that on that resource, a tax dollar, a government dollar, a royalty dollar. They're going to want to incentivize that. And every week in The Economist magazine, there's another story about a new oil and gas find. The Israelis and the Lebanese are fighting over land and somebody else is fighting, right? It's because of the, the 30. And Argentina just uh, extended its... It's land uh, territory well into the offshore. Why? Because they they think there's tremendous oil and gas resources out there. Well, who's going to use it? So at the end of the day, I do think maybe there's some sort of global agreement on royalties. And maybe we need a new product to tax.
0: Well, the way to think of that is that's what carbon pricing was supposed to be. That if you could come up with a global agreement on the price of carbon, that would be effectively doing what you're asking for.
1: Just a but little again, more the, – the benefit would be more distributed, though, than than just Mexico or just Saudi sure, Arabia. But,
0: but yeah. it's, it's the same idea. So if yeah. you had a, a cartel – but, again, the purchasers of most of this oil is refineries. And so the refineries are often integrated producers, so you have to think about how your tax policy hits them at each stage of the production. And where the Irving refinery is unique is they're not an integrated – oil producer they don't have their own producing wells and then refine and then sell through their distribution network like most of the majors and so when you're trying to tax a bp or an Exxon, you can get them at the wellhead or you can get them at the gas pump or you can get them at the refinery it's just again they can they can decide even where they're going to refine and it might be out of your jurisdiction and one of the things I've heard about Canada is the way we do tax policy is we create huge incentives to book a company's costs in Canada and they book their profits somewhere else. Yeah. And so when we're dealing with multinational firms, we always have to be aware of that uh, nothing moves faster than an accountant when it comes to a tax. So,
1: And that, <laughs> is, that, is, that is a discussion for another day because I think that that has – implications even interprovincially. You and I have talked about this before. Uh, 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 corporate income tax as a share of GDP is about half here compared to Ontario. Um, you know, you have to wonder if that means the entire, sec- the entire economy is half as profitable, or is that just a question of where you're booking profits? But that's for another day because I want to end today on where we started around Prince Edward Island and around proactive economic development. My instincts are that you're not overly um interested in government's proactively developing industry. I think you're a bit of a free markets guy. I'll get you away on that in a second, but I do think, you know, 93 billion dollars in subsidies by governments between 2013 and 2017 that's almost a hundred billion dollars in subsidies, but it's less than one percent of the GDP created over that period across the country. So it's still relatively limited. If you if you compare it to the you know investments in education, healthcare, and everything else, it's still only one percent of the total. But there is a school of thought now. This Mariano Mazzucato is leading this. It was quoted by Mark Carney. She was quoted her book on co-creation, this idea that government should come along and say, okay, pharmaceutical industry, that's a strategically important industry. Government should have a say. Government should invest. Government should co-create that industry. She has applied that to information technology. She's applied that to a lot of industries, food, uh, basically any industry that's she would consider strategic. Are you warming up to that idea or are you pretty well let the market run take that hundred billion cut it off completely like where where are you in this idea that 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 government there's a public interest in economic development and government should play some role in trying to stimulate the maple syrup industry in albert county
0: so this is where i will sound a bit confused because i have two perspectives on this one if i'm If I'm Canadian and I care about the Canadian economy and its growth, stop all these subsidies to the regions. Let the market pick if it makes sense to do something there. So if you're good at blueberries, if you're good at tourism, you'll figure out a way to do it. But no more cash for it because all it's doing. And there's another study coming out that will show that every dollar you transfer out of Alberta into this region is on net costing the country more money than you're gaining in this region. Because we aren't as good at it at using the money as they would be in Alberta with the size of their economy. So then it comes down to this is the gravity theme for the region is that we're always pulling against gravity because the economic forces are trying to pull the capital out of here and put it into places where it has higher productivity and higher returns. So at that point, What am I doing? I'm no longer Canadian. I want to be a Maritimer and my job isn't to develop the Canadian economy. My job is to keep the standard of living here pretty good and I need industry to do it. So how do I do that? I can use my business conditions. I can make them as favorable as I can. I can train my workforce and then it's still not enough because there's other disadvantages. What am I going to do to offset the lower profitability of this location so that that company is willing to do it here rather than in Toronto. And so that's where you have to think about what's your perspective. Is it defending and growing the Prince Edward Island economy, or is it growing the Atlantic economy where we'll do what the feds are doing, which is we're all in on Halifax. And so – If we want to get back to 2% growth, the quickest way to do it is not carry on with the economy we have. It's to create something that's much more centralized and urban and much easier to predict how you can get the growth just by people moving in. So it's not a good answer for your question because there isn't a unique answer for it. You have to decide what you care about as a developer and what tools do you have at hand to achieve your objective.
1: So I'm going to assume that provinces care about provinces, cities care about cities, and the country cares about the country um, in general. We all care about the country, but if Alberta booms and Moncton busts, I don't think you're going to get a lot of sympathy in Moncton for Alberta. Um, so $11.7 billion in total subsidies in British Columbia. I suspect, well, there's been studies done on it, that several of those billions went to the uh, movie production industry and video production direct cash to firms Deadpool you know was given something like 50 billion million not billion 50 million dollars in subsidies one film because its production value was 250 million or something uh, 8.6 billion in Alberta 4.5 billion in Saskatchewan 3.2 in Manitoba 28 billion in Ontario you can start to pick off some of the industries if you think about Ontario it's certainly auto would have gotten a big chunk of that Agriculture, uh, you know, thirty-two billion in Quebec. Every industry basically gets some sort of subsidy. So, two point one billion in Nova Scotia, eight hundred twenty-eight million in in New Brunswick. So, are you saying you kind of skirted it, as you said? But should governments take every year one percent of GDP, one point five, and start to steer the economy? Using that money to get the outcomes they want, or should they? Sh- would you like to see New Brunswick even spending less and letting the market just go where it's going to go?
0: So, the challenge with that question is you have to think about are you trying to steer the economy towards something that we're not naturally good at, but hope we can be good at, like pharmaceuticals? Are you hoping that we can leverage our strengths, like after? The post-NAFTA period which is why we got back into extractive industries because we were really good at it we had mining companies we had the expertise we had the capital in Toronto uh, to do a lot of that we had expert forest companies that were kicking around Um, but what we didn't pay attention to is that we were really good at attracting multinationals for the most part and when you have policies like Again, it's not just cash subsidies, the National Energy Program had a big bent towards pushing the American capital out and bringing Canadian companies into the energy sector. And so when we think about this, when you want, anytime you want to interfere with the economy, you can do it to play defense because other places are subsidizing. So we're just trying to put things on an equal footing. The other one is if you want to turn your economy to something else, and New Brunswick did this in the 1970s and 80s, there was a big push towards industrial diversification using big cash grants and incentives from DRI and FRED, ARDA, and all the other alphabets of acronyms. None of them stuck. Now, New Brunswick didn't pay for those jobs. It was the federal coffers that did. So for New Brunswick, it was a freebie. You could t- it's like, There was an offside in football. You get a free shot at the end zone. Now, the tragedy of it is when you get those free shots, did you make the most of it? And that's where you get down to execution. So sometimes what we confuse is, the intent, putting the subsidies in, and then the ability to deliver on what was promised. And even when you had Dimitri Anastakis on about Bricklin, that sort of theme comes in, that Bricklin wasn't a ridiculous idea, but by the time they got through the family-based management at the end, it was pretty clear it wasn't being run as effectively as it needed to be. And I haven't answered your question well because it's an impossible question. It's uh we have a federal government that picks winners every day. It's in power. And when you change the government, sometimes the winners change. So we are going to be an energy superpower under Stephen Harper, under Justin Trudeau. We're going to have a great subway system in Toronto. Uh, I forget what Montreal gets. But again, if it's politics that we're talking about, then let's be honest about it. Economics didn't say do this industry. It's we wanted to be high tech. We wanted to do AI. So we went after
1: it. So they're used to be a federal minister by the name of Claudette Bradshaw. She's a institution here in Moncton. And she was the federal minister when Frank McKenna was announcing all the call centers in the day. And she sidled up to me one time and she said, you know, we're giving them 80% of the money they use to bring those call centers here and they never mention us. And that annoys me. So even the call centers, apparently, according to her, was a federal provincial agreement that pumped a lot of money that they were using, using to bring those in. So I guess what I'm hearing though, from you is that as long as it's maple syrup, blueberries, trees and stuff that we're sort of naturally good at, you're okay with a little bit of this co-creation idea, or you're at least you won't uh, fight actively against it. But if it's pharmaceuticals and stuff, we don't know, we don't have any kind of core expertise that we're trying to graft on, but then we get in trouble because of Michelin and the tires in Nova Scotia.
0: Well, let me give you a better example about where I do think that uh, this targeted development can work. And that's where I think someone needs to dive a little deeper into NBTEL becoming a lion and then eventually exiting. So the subsidy there is you create a monopoly. And you do that because every province has its own phone network and it has profitability that's guaranteed by the way it can charge for things like long distance calls. Now, it turns out New Brunswick got really lucky. I lived in provinces where we didn't have, let's say, as benevolent a monopoly as NBTEL that was investing in local industry and doing really interesting things on the ICT innovation front. Instead, we just got gouged in other provinces and they became Bell, they became Telus. But there was something unique about a company that was created with massive subsidies through monopoly clauses. NB Power has the same potential to do the same thing, but it has a different history with uh, political interference and other things like that. But there are a lot of examples where It wasn't the things that we were naturally good at that we did manage to become uh, successful with because we had the, the wealth from the resource sector. One of the best examples of economic diversification, I really don't know how much was public money versus private, but the fact that there's an oil refinery in New Brunswick is incredible. The fact that it's the only one still standing after all the industry rationalization and its exporting is incredible. The refineries in Canada don't export. They produce for a domestic market. But that's an example of that industry has no comparative advantage in St. John, if you read Savoie's book and you had him on your podcast. But it's become one of the most incredible, lucrative exporting sectors in this province. So that's a case where you could argue it wasn't public money, but it's the same thing. It is possible to bring a new industry here and do it. But it doesn't happen the way we have been doing it for 30 years.
1: And that comes down, in that case, to the quality of the entrepreneur. So the, the, the relentless focus on efficiency and productivity and so on. So I just one last question, because you raised NB Power and NB So NB Tel, I worked at NB a bit. I worked with NB for a number of years. They were only spending on the IT sort of call center, like to try and do that piece of it, only about 1% or 2% of revenue. So it's not like they were investing half the company and pushing telecom rates through the roof. The telecommunications rates here were very competitive with the rest of the country. They were just tinkering with one or two percent. So take the NB Power example. NB Power is a one point seven million dollar, one point seven billion dollars in revenue. If they took two percent, that would be three hundred and forty. No, thirty four. Sorry, third. I'm having the older <laughs> I get, the older I get, the harder it is to do math in my head. But that'd be thirty four million dollars. 2% of their revenue every year to, f- to tinker around with trying to, to you know, grow uh, startups in energy and trying to do stuff around smart grid and so on. So, and they're not allowed to do that. They're, they're, they're literally by regulation, they are not allowed to do that. But all it would be on the rate payer is about 1% or 2%. But they could almost do an NB Power uh, or NB Tel kind of initiative with a very sh- small amount of revenue but they're not allowed to do by regulation and I would say by culture and by history and by precedent and everything else. Um, so anyway, this has been an incredibly valuable discussion. I do appreciate you stepping in at the last minute and hopefully we have, uh, we've uh, educated the listeners about what's going on on PEI and why, why there are limits to that comparison. And then as we veered away into uh, Alberta and subsidies and my crazy idea about putting royalties on potatoes, Thank you for straightening that out. And as we move forward here, Herb, we'll have to have uh, uh, continued discussions about the role of government, because ultimately, you know, whether we like it or not, you know, there is a move toward more government intervention in the economy globally. uh, And we have to see what the New Brunswick response should be to that trend. So thank you again. Thank you very much. Uh, And I look forward to having you on again in the very near future.
0: Happy to come on anytime, David.
1: Thanks, Herb. Take care.
0: Growing Pains with David Campbell is produced by me, Matt George, is engineered by the great Zachary Peltier, and is part of the Unsettled Media Podcast Network.